Hey, my name is Andrew, and welcome to episode three of Alt Class. In this episode, we are talking to Catherine Harrison. Catherine is the founder and CEO of Magpie, a platform that helps you manage your collectibles and alternative assets and integrate all of it into a single place. In this conversation, we explore the general landscape of alternative assets and collectibles and discuss things like how value in collectibles is achieved, unexpected asset classes, NFTs, super fakes, and the growing value of Pokemon cards. All right, hope you enjoy this episode of All Class. More on the way. Well, thank you so much, Andrew. It's wonderful to be here. Um, yes, so I am the founder of Magpie. Uh, Magpie is a consumer fintech platform to unlock liquidity in alternative assets like sports cards and memorabilia, handbags, and all sorts of other collectibles that you probably have at home uh, in your house. So um, that's what I'm doing prior to Magpie. I spent about seven years at IBM. I ran product management for IBM Blockchain, uh, which was incredible. We built the open source protocol Hyperledger Fabric for running private permission networks. We built the IBM Blockchain Platform, which was the first enterprise blockchain as a service. And then we worked with about 500 different companies um, from Walmart to Maersk to every bank you've ever heard of and a whole host more. So yeah, that's me. Nice, great. Um, you framed Magpie as a, a way to unlock liquidity, which sort of gives me a little indication around which side of the marketplace you're focused on today. Um, and so you've obviously got you know buyers and sellers, I'm, I'm assuming, on Magpie? Yeah, absolutely. So we've really started with people who have a passion for the hobby. Um, as you probably know, in the last uh, two and a half years, but candidly, this is a trend that is almost a decade long, um, we've seen a real move towards uh, the financialization of many different things. Robinhood and Coinbase have turned everyone into an investor. And suddenly, people are interested in accessing alternative assets for a variety of reasons, right? First and foremost, they might love the product, be tied to you know, nostalgic history, for example. Uh, my dad originally shared his baseball card collection that he got from his dad. So that's a common story that we hear. The second piece, though, is that people are looking for uncorrelated return. Um, and alternative assets give a whole new life to active investing. You can obviously not only buy and sell shares in some of these assets, but you can actually physically possess them, which is a lot more fun than digital share certificates, let's be honest. So um, we've really started by building a lot of the tools that are needed to manage these assets as a true asset class for the first time, being able to track what they're worth, uh, what is their history and their provenance, um, and then being able to connect with other people in the space who value these assets in the same way that um, our collectors do. Got it. Well, so I, uh, my experience is limited in the space. I've got a few items that I think are valuable. Joe Carter once signed a baseball for me. So did, actually, I have Reggie Jackson's home run ball from the 1977 World Series. 
Um, and you know, I'm a big I'm a big baseball fanatic, and so I've got an upper deck complete series 1991. And help me understand the bounds, I guess you could say, of what is valuable and what is not uh, when it comes to sort of the long tail of memorabilia or trading cards or what have you. Ah, uh, what is valuable and what is not? That is something that is um, evolving. So let's start. You kind of want to look at it in a broad category sense to begin with. Um, obviously, fine art Ferraris have always been asset classes. Um, on average, ultra high net worth individuals tend to allocate about five to ten of five to ten percent of their portfolios. So you want to look at categories that have a couple of key qualities. Number one is rarity. So um, categories that um, have really you know kind of defined um uh releases you know how mm. many are there is important the second is around conditions so the condition of the asset is really important obviously sports part cards pokemon cards um handbags watches all of them have the ability to be investment assets even sneakers but it depends on their condition. So sports cards and autographs are graded, which provides a very helpful understanding of what levels they're at. Um, but other assets don't benefit from that same grading. So obviously the higher quality, the condition, if it remains in the original packaging, if it has never been taken out or been used, then it tends to be at a much higher level of value. Um, and then it also ties to culture. So we're seeing a resurgence in, you know, nerd culture, which has led to the explosion of video games, of Funko Pops, of different types of toys. Um, there are obviously hundreds of different categories that people collect and find value in. But finding a large market of interested collectors, buyers, and investors is key. So Magpie focuses on a couple of those initial spaces, particularly around sports, um, cards and memorabilia. Um, and then moving from there based on users' interest to other spaces like watches, um, handbags, and um, a couple of other categories that we will roll out as time moves on. What you, what you didn't mention, but I know that you wrote about recently, and I'm fascinated by, is there's a little bit of um, there's a little bit of a story around Pokemon cards that's emerged of late. A little bit of mayhem uh, ensued, and I, is that a category that you're that you're currently? Yeah. So I realized I didn't mention trading cards in general. Uh, I tend to lump them in with sports cards, but got trading it. cards is actually a tremendous category, right? So you've got sports, which probably many people are familiar with, but there's also everything from Pokemon to Magic the Gathering to Star Wars, which have all seen a tremendous resurgence in, um, in value and in interest from collectors. In fact, as I think probably what you're referring to is Target has actually stopped the sales of Pokemon cards in many of their retail outlets across the United States because scalpers and avid, rabid fans were literally showing up and getting into fights trying to get access to some of the most recent, uh, recently released packs. 
So um, that sort of gives you a sense of the the mania and the excitement around this space. I see. So, yeah. and, um, and so you've got these initial categories that you're trying to use to catalyze, I'm assuming, an audience on the platform. Um, sort of that age-old problem when you have a marketplace, right? You want to you wanna be ever-present in sort of some subset of the market first uh, to catalyze both sides, right? Yeah, and so we've really done that by targeting whales in the sports space. So for example, we've got one of the largest collectors of Wayne Gretzky memorabilia, one of the largest collectors of Lionel Messi uh, cards and memorabilia. So these are people and organizations that have uh, really focused in specific spaces and they really care deeply about the hobby. And so they not only um, want to buy and sell assets, but they also need a whole set of tools to manage their collections, which really don't exist on the market today. Um, I, with your few kind of crown jewels of your collection, um, how do you keep track of them? I have to ask. You're being generous. Uh, they're, they're probably rotting on a shelf somewhere at the moment. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so when you were talking, when you were emphasizing condition, I was just a little, a tear was rolling down <laughs> my cheek a little bit because I don't know if I'd pass the sniff test at this point, but uh, I, I am curious how, so there's a condition factor and mm -hmm. I would imagine there's another variable when you're sort of trying to ascertain value to a collectible that is almost kind of like legend or there's like an emotionality to it, right? So some, they're usually tied to like a celebrity, that celebrity's legend might be growing or fading through time and I, I wonder how that weighs into to an investment uh, decision absolutely so obviously the big names in sports Michael Jordan Kobe mm -hmm. Bryant LeBron James uh, Joe Montana if you want to go back far enough Wayne Gretzky as I mentioned mm -hmm. these giants obviously continue to hold value in ways that um, other players won't as the, as the test of time kind of passes by. The other thing is the specific card and the release. As you may know, their rookie cards in particular have tremendous value, often because when, a, when an initial set of rookie cards comes out, you're not necessarily sure who's going to be the stars. Um, there are obviously some, but mm -hmm. um, so that's kind of the second piece. The third piece is with modern cards, the actual performance of the players has a real impact on the cards uh, pricing performance and demand. So if someone is playing very well, their card will tend to go up in value. Um, if they get injured, if they're out of the sport, if something bad happens, their value tends to go down. So there really is a very direct correlation, particularly in sports, um, in modern sports cards, to what's actually happening um, in the world at the moment. In some of the other categories, um, some of the supply chain challenges that we've seen, particularly around watches, around Pokemon cards, those have had impacts on their prices as well. So it's really interesting to look at not only the asset class, its condition, as well mm -hmm. as kind of where, from where and when does it come. Um, the last thing we haven't really talked about is the provenance. Yeah. So important to understand the history of where a particular asset comes from. 
Um, and the more data and history you have about that asset, the higher value you are likely to get, particularly with autographs, if you know that it was autographed in a specific game, et cetera. It's really important. I wasn't aware of that. Does, is there, uh, is it a detractor if it's sort of been through many hands or does that sort of not weigh into the picture? Not necessarily. Um, mm. It depends really on how well it has been tracked and certified. Um, obviously in, in cards, grading is important, but having that clear set of records of where did it come from, particularly if it came directly from an athlete um, or directly from a celebrity, those tend to obviously fetch higher value. So if I've got uh, Beyonce sneakers, they're worth a lot more than if it's just a pair of Nikes that I bought off of Nike.com. So. Mm -hmm. Got it. And I, I'm assuming, even though you are sort of concentrating in these initial subsets of the market, that there is, it is a long tail uh, of collectibles and memorabilia is, is, is what I would imagine. And I guess as you uh, have been in the space now for a while, what are maybe some of the interesting or unusual things that you've seen at the very end of the tail that folks would never think could be perceived as an asset or an investment? Um, great question. So when I first got into the space, I was really surprised that tickets to mm -hmm. specific games, specific concerts, they have become an incredible um, set of collectibles. So if you have the tickets to a World Series game or the last game that, you know, Kobe Bryant paid at, that's kind of one set of collectibles that I wouldn't have considered as being particularly, um, they didn't occur to me originally. I think what I'm finding um, interesting now um, are a number of the, uh, or at least the growth I'm finding interesting is some of the toy categories. Original G.I. Joe um, figurines have been up oh. as much as 2,000% in the last 18 months. Um, oh, so wow. it's what a little- driving the, that? So I think there's a hunter mentality um, I think that people combine uh, an interest and a nostalgia for specific products and categories, mm -hmm. and then they start to see now that they can be bought and sold in many different auction houses, in some of the fractional um, ownership platforms, and so suddenly people are unearthing and finding assets that they that they have this connection to and that people are really interested in, in getting access to. Humans love to have rare things. And I think that it's that rarity combined with, let's be honest, we've all been locked in our houses for 18 months with yeah. you know, not much to be able to, to do or to explore, to spend money on. And it's meant that we've rediscovered um, a lot of these areas. Yeah, you mentioned um, a moment ago, you know, fractional ownership is sort of a, a method of coming to own these, these rare collectibles. And so maybe you could give us a little bit of uh, a landscape around, you know, what, what models of fractional ownership exist or whether there's sort of direct transaction for the entirety of the piece or, and, and where Magpie sort of fits into that as well. Yeah, absolutely. So fractional ownership um, obviously has existed for things like real estate and boats for a very long time. What we saw in the mid 2010s is an interest in fractional ownership for things like classic cars and art. 
So a couple of companies came onto the scene, um, Rally Road being one of them. Initially, they focused on classic cars, and now they're focused across a whole range of uh, collectible assets. Um, there are others more focused on art. So Masterworks is probably one of the most well-known. They purchase pieces of art um, and then securitize them. And individuals can buy individual shares. So what it means is that basically a piece of art, a car, a set of baseball cards will be turned into its own essentially company. And then there's an IPO or a share sale for shares of those assets. Um, and for people that are interested in whether it's classic cars, rare books, or art, it gives you a chance to own a small share. Often the, the starting share price can be as low as 10 to $20 um, for an asset that the majority of people would probably never be in a position to actually own. And so I think for most people, um, the appeal of fractional ownership is really the entertainment value of having a share and an ownership stake in assets that are incredibly rare and generally inaccessible. Now, obviously, there is also an, in, an important investing component. So you have certain windows when you're able to buy and sell um, shares, you know, the shares that you have in specific assets, depending on the platform, they manage them in different ways. Um, and so you can potentially buy and sell those shares at a profit. And ultimately, um, if a buyer comes in, the seller, the shareholders can decide, do they want to share, sell the asset at a specific price? So there is certainly a, you know, strong potential up to upside return, particularly because the fractional ownership companies are doing a very good job of curating the caliber of the assets that they make available for shares. You know, my pair of Jordan 1s are probably not of the condition or rarity to be able to fractionalize um, a Wayne Gretzky game-worn jersey certainly would be. And so um, where Magpie comes in is we allow our collectors to actually integrate the fractional shares that they have. So mm -hmm. if you've purchased a share of Wayne Gretzky's um, jersey or a share of uh, a, a Mondrian or you know whatever rare sorts of assets you might be purchasing on the fractional platforms, to be able to integrate that and see that along with any of the collectibles that you already own and hold on to so that you can actually look at that as a full portfolio in the culture space. So you can say, oh, look, I've got, I own these specific physical things and then I have shares in these, um, in these other assets. And it allows you to basically have a digital gallery and a way to share in a much more interactive way some of those fractional pieces that you own. Um, and we're working with some of these mega collectors on being able to fractionalize some of their assets as they look at different ways to um, unlock liquidity for their collections so interesting so now now I have to ask because we've gotten into fractional ownership we've talked about scarcity uh, I think anyone who's paying attention to the alternative space probably at this point is hoping I ask about NFTs for example and perhaps you could sort of 
give me a little bit of, of how you came into this space or how it how it will eventually or maybe how it already does uh, integrate with the NFT world. Uh, I know your background, obviously, as you mentioned at the outset at uh, IBM working on Hyperledger, you probably have some some fairly informed opinions here. Yeah, so I bought my first CryptoKitties back in 2018. I've been a huge fan of the NFT space for a very long time. And I'm super excited about the ways in which it has taken off in the last year and a half. Um, I also, given as, as I sort of explained earlier, I did a lot of work um, around supply chain and provenance use cases, mm -hmm. leveraging blockchain. And so I see, and I have, I have a few kind of core theses on NFTs. First is that I think they are actually the on-ramp for normies into the crypto and blockchain world in a way that is more compelling to a certain mm -hmm. extent than the more traditional Bitcoin and ETH, which are sort of magical internet money, right? right. Um, there is something tangible, um, you know, beautiful, or at least something that gives you some tie to identity that an average person can at least feel more of a connection and understanding. Now, there are plenty of people asking, why are JPEGs going for hundreds of thousands of dollars? And I think what um, is really important is that um, the ownership rights over that initial concept. And that ability to create this non-fungible token is going to be a huge stepping stone between the convergence of the digital and the physical worlds. So over the course of the pandemic, we've all spent the last 18 months living in a far more digital world than we previously have. Mm -hmm. Obviously, things like gaming, et cetera, have become more important in our lives. And I think NFTs become really that bridge to be able to track and bring things from our physical lives into the digital world and vice versa. Um, and so from our perspective, um, Magpie enables asset-backed NFTs, so you can you can actually issue um, NFTs based on specific mm -hmm. physical assets okay. and then you can integrate NFTs into your overall portfolio and what's super cool is that in the sports space this is one of the areas where it's kind of the most mature and developed both across traditional collectibles as well as um, NFTs and so you can start to see and compare what does performance look like, what's interesting, what types of collectors, investors, and people are interested in the different spaces. And I think it's a really important pilot for the next generation um, of NFTs that are going to start to unlock real world benefits um, and track a lot of the history and authenticity um, of these products. And so, you know, as a CEO in this space, I'm, I'm genuinely curious. And usually, there's a good origin story. And for you, did it did it come through your sort of blockchain hyperledger experience, or does it date further back? And have you been a collectibles fan since before we were talking about blockchains? Yeah. So I I was a nerdy kid that had um, 
keychains and Beanie Babies and Cabbage Patch dolls and just and almost every single Super Nintendo game that was out there on the market. Um, as a grown-up, I was more into, I am more into handbags and Hermes scarves and, um, and watches. So I had this interest and passion for collectibles and for being able to track rare and historical things. Um, my, my husband collects ship models. My father had a baseball and stamp card collection. So, you know, I think I, this has kind of just been part of my DNA for a long time. So when I was looking at what I think it was going to take to make blockchain really have its full impact in the world, I realized this was going to have to come bottoms up from people that, um, had specific assets and had problems that really couldn't be solved in the world today. And Mm. being able to track prices, history, authenticity, provenance, um, particularly around collectibles, that just made uh, a tremendous amount of sense to me. And so as I started to see um, the prices and the value of these assets go up, the only answer continues to be basically a scavenger hunt across the internet, looking at um, eBay and other types of marketplaces to try and figure out what the the values are. And I just realized that this was uh, a space that was completely ripe for um, for disruption, leveraging um, blockchain. And I've also found that a lot of my friends in the crypto space are really interested in diversifying. They've come to understand a whole different set of alternative assets and they're almost working backwards into um, items that they um, hadn't really seen as in, as investable assets before, but now certainly are. And that's driven a lot of the interest in sports memorabilia and handbags, et cetera. So. Yeah. So as another sort of CEO in the space, I, I think about the financialization of everything a lot as well. and. The challenge is, um, you know, if you have a full-time job or you're running a company or what have you, it, it seems like it just, there's so much and it's moving so quickly. And so maybe you could give some high-level characteristics, like what are the, what are the return profiles here? Uh, how, you know, what are sort of the horizons that you'd recommend people think about when holding these assets? Uh, and of course, I'm curious, how does one lose uh, one shirt in these transactions if they're not paying attention? Yeah. Um, great, great question. So I think the one thing that I would say to most people as they start to move into the collectibles landscape mm. is pick categories that you're interested in and that you have some sort of passion or enthusiasm for because there are lots of benefits to collecting them over and above the investable side. Obviously, if you have that interest, it's going to make following the news and the kind of the ups and downs of the space much more interesting. So that's first. Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of the return profile, um, you know, we've seen anywhere from kind of 124% is what we're seeing for trading cards across the board. Specific categories um, like Pokemon cards and others have been up as much as 500% in the last 18 months. However, um, we had a sort of a a bit of a burst of enthusiasm in kind of the 
February, March, April timeframe, we saw a lot of assets tended to peak in that period. And we've seen a little bit of a correction and reversion down. So the highest caliber assets um, in terms of condition, um, size of like low size of population and rarity are continuing to maintain returns of, you know, anywhere from, from 50 to 100 plus. However, a lot of the less specialized asset, like a lot of the less famous assets and lower quality are significantly down from their highs. So I think that that's something um, for people that are getting into this space, you can see that as a buying opportunity, um, but to be aware. In terms of time horizons, you're generally looking at a slightly longer time horizon um, months to years, depending on the assets and the category, um, than what you might be doing day trading with um, other types of assets like NFTs or crypto. Um, part of it has a lot to do with modern players in terms of their lifetime performance, et cetera. And you also see really interesting dynamics around the time of year. So particularly around sports, you will see that um, cards tend to do better in season than off season, which can create great opportunities for buyers and obviously less than ideal um, opportunities for sellers. Um, how does one lose one's shirt is a really important question. Mm -hmm. So there are a couple of ways. If you're just um, number one, kind of speculating without any background or history in terms of what you're doing, there has been so much froth and so much excitement. You know, you've seen people like Logan Paul spending millions of dollars on Pokemon packs. Um, if you don't understand what you're doing or have the right advisors, that's one sure way to do it. Um, the second is really be thoughtful about the platforms that you're buying and selling on um, and the, the, the risk of counterfeits is considerable. So mm. one way to avoid that is to look for graded or authenticated products. There are lots of companies that do authentication that can help to um, avoid that uh, set of problems. And, you know, I think the, the final one is um, not setting goals ahead of time. If you decide that this is what I'm trying to do with my um, collectibles investing, whether it's I'm trying to build the biggest collection, I'm trying to return, um, create the biggest return in the fastest period of time. Mm -hmm. If you don't have those objectives, then you won't have a set of criteria or parameters to make your decisions about when to buy and sell. And I think that that is probably the most important kind of first principle uh, before moving into this space because that will help you to establish what you're trying to achieve, so. Yeah, that's good advice. Now, you, you mentioned authenticity, which I'm assuming you know adds to the cost base of the item if, if you're gonna do authenticity properly. Who, who bears that cost? So if, if something's been really well authenticated, do platforms take on that cost as, as a, like a value-added service, or would you see it reflected in the price of the item and so maybe don't buy it at the cheapest place you can kind of thing? That's a great question. So we've seen a lot of the marketplace. So 
a, a few different answers to that. Number one, um, your seller should almost always take on authentication because mm -hmm. it's going to help them get the highest price. And there are different forms of authentication. You can do, can send a series of pictures and get a digital authentication. You can have it manually authenticated or even appraised by an expert in the space. Obviously the price differ differential is significant depending on the asset and the type of authentication that you're doing. So you certainly wanna see the seller step in to do that. It's, it's an important indicator, although it's by no means proof because there are lots of ways to game the system. Mm -hmm. um, the second thing is a lot of marketplaces and eBay most notably have stepped in to offer authentication services. So um, obviously uh, StockX is built on this entire um, platform of manual kind of physical authentication of all of the goods before you um, before you actually complete the transaction. And even eBay, which is notoriously one of the worst for counterfeit goods, has started to introduce authentication in the last year for sneakers, for watches, for handbags, and for a few other categories. And it's actually helped them drive pretty impressive um, increase in both sales volume and profit margin. Um, but as a buyer, if you are spending considerable funds, then you should also look to get it authenticated as soon as you take possession of it so that if there is any problem, you can move as quickly as possible. Every platform has a different set of rules and criteria around um, ability to return, et cetera. So, mm -hmm. um, and that's where working with um, some of the auction houses and brokers can actually be helpful if you're looking for very specific assets tied to particular players or artists mm -hmm. um, because they can help to avoid some of those risks. Um, and that's a big part of what Magpie is doing is helping to track history, authenticity, appraisal, and provenance so that you have a lot of background not only on the asset but also on the person who is selling it to give you more confidence in terms of what you're building. Is, does the person selling it to you uh, impact price in any way? Like for example, if it passes through a set of hands that I don't know, maybe are well known as a collector, for example, is that gonna add to the premium? Generally it will, yes. Um, there okay. are certain marquee collectors who are very well known for finding great assets, for having the highest quality and caliber um, pieces. And so mm. that will certainly have a material impact on the price. What's fascinating is that you have a couple of different types of collectors. Some aim to remain incredibly anonymous and private and don't want their names attached to or tied to anything that they're doing whether that be for security or privacy reasons. Mm -hmm. You have another set of collectors that loves to flex and that um, really wants to not only, you know, have some of the coolest pieces in their collection, but also wants to build their reputation as collectors. Right. Um, and they're doing that, you know, through a lot of social media platforms and partnerships, et cetera. So I would not say that one is necessarily better than the other. I think they have a lot more to do with personal preferences and personal goals than actually the caliber of the collection. Mm -hmm. um, but there are obviously people who have come to be quite well known as collectors and that does 
have an impact um, on their collection, on their the value of the things in their collection. So there's a bit of a metagame going on here. If you wanted to turn yourself into a collector, you might be able to eventually apply a premium across your portfolio, uh, which is which is fascinating. Um, I can see how uh, that'd be compelling in this day and age when there's so many things coming available. Um, back to sort of authenticity for a minute. I have a, a question uh, on a term that I, I, I didn't realize before doing a little background research, but can you tell me what is a super fake and, and how, might, how might that be different than a regular fake? Yeah, so super fakes are, have just emerged in the last couple of years and they're often built or made on the same manufacturing equipment as the authentic products, sometimes coming out of the same factories. Um, they are built to a level of precision. In certain circumstances, it can be difficult for the original manufacturers to even identify what is um, fake versus real. Wow. So they are often using the same materials, the same molds, um, but they're not necessarily authenticated. This has come out particularly in watches, in sneakers, um, and in handbags. And so what's interesting is obviously counterfeit products have been around for a very long time. Um, I live in New York City, so Canal Street has sort of been the center of that. And most people know sort of what they're getting and they, you know, uh, they understand um, what, you know, that they're not buying the right caliber. And the brands work hard to shut those counterfeiters down. But most of the, the, the purchasers of those types of counterfeit products are never going to be the main purchasers or buyers of, you know, an authentic Hermes Birkin bag or mm -hmm. a Daytona watch. But counterfeiters are the ultimate capitalists. And what they are looking to do is to make an incredible profit. And so what they are able to do is basically for spending a few hundred dollars to create the counterfeit, they can ge generate revenue in the tens of thousands of dollars for some of these assets. And e-commerce has made it particularly easy to be able to find unsuspecting buyers and to find marketplaces where this type of uh, these types of goods can be bought and sold. Now, every marketplace has a set of terms of service and policies against counterfeits, but there are obviously places where it is far easier to get them out than others. Um, we've even heard of um, counterfeit products ending up in retail stores um, mm -hmm. because they just are so close. So. Um, this is a phenomenon that if you are um, buying particularly on resale marketplaces or, you know, a lot of what happens is through Instagram and Twitter is where a lot of the, the mm -hmm. hobby can tend to happen. So being aware of this as a risk and knowing what your risk profile is now. If you're spending a hundred dollars and you end up with something counterfeit, you, you might not care, but uh, obviously, it depends on, on your economics, but if you're spending thousands, tens of thousands or more, then you want to be incredibly confident that you have the right product. And I think we're seeing a lot of super fakes in kind of the low thousands to 10,000 range because it's an amount of money at which people are willing to spend online and digitally. They're often trying to get something that's rare and hard to come by. Um, 
and you know these these assets look incredibly real so yeah and i would imagine just the cost of manufacturing such a close replica would would obviously be great enough that you you'd need sort of a, a decent price point to make to make any money as a counterfeiter if you're working in the super fake space that's exactly yeah um, well, I'm always curious about uh, other folks and, and what their portfolios look like, and so you don't need to get too far into the weeds of it, but I'm curious about the composition and uh, what your portfolio construction might look like personally. Sure. So um, we have we have an interesting portfolio construction because we've just bought um, a house, so we're in a slightly different position than usual, but um, we Congrats. are allocated about... Thank you. We are allocated about 70% to alternatives, 30% to um, a range of, um, you know, index funds, uh, kind of traditional equities. Um, in terms of alts, we have a large percentage of our portfolios in crypto. Um, I've basically held a basket of crypto for the last six years. Uh, most of it is kind of buy and hold in some of the biggest protocols. And then I allocate about 5% for learning and play um, to try different tokens. Um, I've been really happy with Solana and a couple of others that uh, we've been we've been invested in. And then um, this year I took um, a pretty sizable um, stake in NFTs. I've been looking at a variety of different communities that um, just to to learn and to experiment and to um, you know to see what what's going on. Um, so I um, yeah that's that's basically and then I've got um, we are experimenting with building an index fund of sports cards. So I have mm -hmm. some interesting assets there that we're that we're trying to construct. Um, Happy to talk more about that at a later date. We have some work to do, though. <laughs> Great. Uh, and, and maybe my favorite question, um, you know, especially for entrepreneurs and, and especially for yourself, I, I, I didn't realize you, you had 70% in alternatives. So how do, you, how do you think about risk? Give me sort of like, how did, you, how did you start to define risk for yourself and what is your relationship to it? Um, I'm actually incredibly conservative, which I realize that portfolio construction does, maybe doesn't um, relate. But um, so I guess I think of risk as your ability to put a price on an outcome that is not the desired outcome, right? Kind of a classic mm -hmm. economist um, version of it. So um, I basically look at um, opportunity. I'm looking for opportunities that have like significant upside risks that are going to teach me something at this stage of my um, my life and my career. My husband and I have set up our life so that our like minimum kind of daily needs are relatively low and mm -hmm. so that we can take bigger risks and explore whether it be with different asset classes, with career decisions, with um, where we are trying to live and the things that we're trying to do. We've sort of set out core values and goals and then tried to align kind of a risk appetite around that. So we're in a, we're in a period of fairly robust risk appetite. I think, yeah. you know, life will change and we'll probably go in a different direction, but um, that's where we are right now. 
Very cool. This last one is selfish. I, uh, I've been formulating my, my sort of sports card or memorabilia strategy here as an investor while you've been talking. And so this might appeal to everybody who's watching who, uh, who plays fantasy sports because we share something in common. We all think we are uh, excellent adjudicators of talent. Uh, and so, yeah, so he here's my strategy. You tell me if this, this has any potential. Um, if you're a good scout of talent in a particular sport, I'll use baseball, um, you, you probably follow the minor leagues, you probably are aware when the rookie cards get issued, you know, which ones have the highest probability, etc. Have, uh, have you seen an abundance of people sort of employ a strategy like this where uh, they're looking to, to grab a cohort, if you will, and, and see the maturity of that cohort through 15 years or something? Um, absolutely. I think that's one of the most, um, I think that's a great strategy, particularly if you love the sport and want to follow the players. Mm -hmm. So you can actually basically create a set tied to a specific year, um, a specific release, and then you can actually track those. You can look at adding how to, how do those players progress throughout their careers, their teams, add in new assets depending on their performance. Um, I think that can be both a fun and potentially very lucrative because then you've got the rookie cards for an entire class and you can sort of watch them progress. So um, I think that as a strategy makes uh, a ton of sense. All right. Well, I'm glad I didn't get laughed out of the room, but uh, <laughs> sounds like others might be onto that one too. Good stuff. It's not the first time I've heard that strategy, yeah, but yeah. I think there's a lot of, there's a lot of, um, value in the approach because it has both financial opportunity as well as kind of the fun and the passion side of it. Yeah, that's that's exactly the idea. Well, Catherine, thank you so much for, for taking the time today. I, uh, I really enjoyed speaking with you and I feel like I learned a lot. Hopefully uh, folks listening in did as well. Um, and, and best of luck with Magpie. I, uh, I'm excited to follow the trajectory. Thanks so much, Andrew. It's been really nice to chat with you and I've loved sharing a bit of our journey.